Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. What's up, everyone? It's Noah Daniels. We're for another episode of the Real Hauntings podcast. And on this episode, we have special guest host, Catherine. You know her as your friendly neighborhood medium with her own podcast, Murder and Mediumship. And you have a new segment that you're doing on there as well. Isn't that right, Catherine? Yeah, we're doing a little bit of like a mental health check-ins for all of the true crime junkies who need a little bit of help after listening to the insane amount of true crime we all listen to so a little bit of checking in see how you're doing check in on your self-worth make sure that um you're feeling good yeah and also make sure you check out Catherine's uh live streams on tiktok i popped into one last night and heard a story about a specific ghost jumping in the shower with her that was very interesting so i'm not gonna spoil it for you you'll have to jump in and see those as well and on this episode we have one of my favorite guests of all time she has been coming on the podcast i think since year one um she is one of the originals on tiktok that really set the trend for what we see now in so many videos it's my bloody galentine aka becky or becky aka my bloody galentine i don't know how you sign your checks i assume it's one of those uh, becky thanks for coming back on the podcast thanks so much for having me again Yeah, absolutely. So I have been keeping up with you, you know, via social media, and you have been super, super busy. You actually told us before we started the podcast that you haven't been home in 20 days. Yeah, I have not. I left for Eureka Springs on January 7th. And so it's been 19 days, tomorrow will be 20. Um, I have been in more haunted locations in the past couple of weeks than I probably have in a year before it's it's been intense wow and i guess i should have warned you that i now have a shaved head i hopefully that wasn't too jarring Uh, no i come on here shaved head camera quality is like all brand new i'm like who are these people (laughs) i know you you saw the days of like here's a kitchen table and uh you know you've, you've really seen the progression well, yeah. So, and I know you've also been working with um, some other creators in our space as well. And before we jump into like super specific stuff, how are you feeling? Like, how are you doing after this big journey? Tired. I'm a little bit ready for a break, but I actually have another investigation at the Granite Theater in Westerly, Rhode Island. So it's a public investigation um, with John Zaffis and some local um, it's a local tour company, Seaside Shadows. So they put that together for folks to come and spend the night at a historic theater. So um, that will be my last for hopefully a little bit. But unfortunately, with this stuff, it can be, hey, can you be in Savannah, Georgia in two weeks? Yeah, sure, I'll try it. Because if you don't, then someone else will go. So I try not to say yes to everything I learned that I can pick my opportunities. But at the same time, I don't want to miss a place that I might not have a chance to go back to. And I've had back to back essentially once in a lifetime opportunities in the past few weeks. Wow. Um, well, I guess there's no better place to start than a once in a lifetime opportunity. So why don't you start us kind of uh, where all this interest fell for you and and let's start on that journey of those 20 days. 
Okay, so Kalani Ghost Hunter, Kalani Ghost Hunter on TikTok and I are really good friends. And he calls me and he said, hey, I have this opportunity to check out the Crescent Hotel who actually has like the, the trademark for the most haunted hotel in the country. Like they own that tagline. And he was like, there's gonna be nobody else in the hotel but us. This has never been done before. And they're closing it off. There's no guests and we can just investigate. And I'm like, that's in like four days and <laughs> I'm in Connecticut. And even that's a 20 hour drive. If I drive or it's putting my equipment through TSA or, you know, getting to this airport in, in Missouri, which is 30 minutes from the hotel. So I'm like, I got to drive. That's the only way I can make it or else I'm going to have to figure this out. So get my car. I'm like, I guess I'll do it. It wasn't until the night before that I'm like, I have to, this will not happen again. I don't have many decisions I can make. So I drove there. Uh, I stopped in Ohio for like a brief rest stop. I drank a ghost energy drink, not sponsored or anything, but for some <laughs> reason that allowed me to drive for like 16 hours straight until I needed a break. I'm like, I need to sleep. I'm not tired yet, but I need to sleep. And I'm the sleepy guy on investigation. So I was like, I'm not sure why this is allowing me to be so wide awake, but I stopped in St. Louis. Uh, I hit some bucket list locations. I went to the Lemp mansion and the graves there. I also stopped at the grave of a man who requested to be mummified and displayed from his mausoleum, which is a really interesting story. It's not on Atlas Obscure or anything. And I was like, this is crazy. So the mausoleum's really eerie. It has like a stainless steel door. Looked like someone egged it, um, but it's all blocked off now. But it happened in the early 1900s. And he was like, yeah, I want people to come see me. So they mummified him. And you can actually go to the cemetery take a peek at his mummified body. There's pictures of him online. And now uh, a family member has the keys and is the only one who can get in. So we can't see anymore, but for a good time, you can see a oh my gosh. Uh, modern mummy. So that really feels um, like one of those things when you're driving through the Midwest, you know, and it's like on a giant billboard, like see the mummified man, you know, 599. <laughs> that uh, was that was my first time ex being exposed to like the Midwest and, and seeing those kind of signs. And some of them yeah. are a little like, whoa, am I in a, like a whole different world? Like they're so politically incorrect. Some of them, yes. like, did I just see like a representation of some culture like shown that way? Um, so yeah, it was really bizarre. Uh, just driving by myself, pickle in one hand, other hand on the steering wheel. And I'm like, I'm going to make this trip. So well, I'm, I'm um, curious when you, when you went to the mummified guy, cause that's such a unusual experience to have in America. Um, did you get any, I mean, I know it was super interesting, but did you get any vibes while you were there? So this is something I've been putting a lot of research into, and I include a discourse on it in my lecture, Grief and Ghost Hunting, where I think that there's a level of unrest in disturbed graves. And at first I didn't understand it. And I'm kind of putting this puzzle together and it's like, of course, disturbed graves would be haunted. It's not about the body, but if I thought I had some physical tie to this earth, which would be my remains, Again, remains are not equivalent to spirit, but if I thought I had some physical tie to this earth and people were desecrating it or bothering it, especially when you start looking into the Adams tomb in Newburyport, Massachusetts, where it's been disturbed three times, um, why wouldn't you linger there to kind of like make sure everything was going okay or people still wouldn't disturb it? So yeah, it's kind of a strange vibe. Um, I haven't posted about that one yet, but it was just kind of like, 
yeah, you always feel this like level of protection. I don't think it's, it's scary or eerie or, you know, ominous. It's just this level of like, hey, I'm watching you once yeah. a grave has been harmed in that way. And with him, he had been visited a lot and then they closed it off. So his wishes are no longer being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And I noticed his personal like tombstones, um, pr- probably from the familial plot are kind of like toppled over in the back and things like that. Oh, wow. So um do i think it's haunted probably not he has he has a family member maybe he visits with a family member because it's interesting that this family member to this day despite this man passing away so long ago he still comes to visit him and sit with him even though there's probably not a a lifetime connection there so um there probably is something there sure yeah that's really interesting and that kind of left me to another thought. Catherine, have you ever been to one of those bodies exhibits? And if so, does your brain just like ping pong around like crazy being around all those deceased people? Okay, so no, because when I and I was just telling my husband before I came on here, I was like, yo, this girl is like a badass. I am a baby bitch. Like that's just all there is to it. So to put myself in like the positions you do, first of all, I'm in awe because I would be hiding. And second of all, no, because I, when I was in high school, went to a gross anatomy lab and you work, you're a mortician, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. Right up your alley. But for me, I was the kid who passed out. So it's not really, it's not really my cup of tea. You get um, used to it. I imagine you do. I didn't go full out. I just want to defend a little bit there, but uh, it, someone tried to pass me a knee and I just, I turned bright red and, and someone uh, walked me out of the room and I was like, no, I need to go back in. Cause I realized what a baby I was being, but I imagine that it wouldn't be so much energy in like, like Becky's saying, like, it's not so much there as it is with the the people who I would think that the funeral home itself would carry more energy from the people who are living coming through than the actual deceased mm-hmm. bodies hmm. themselves. Yeah. So I don't know, that wouldn't be cool for me from a completely different perspective, though. <laughs> no, I, I feel you. I remember in biology in high school, we had to dissect cats. Um, and of course, And like I had, well, that's a whole nother story. My mom, when she went through her midlife crisis or one of them, uh, she got a cattery. And by that, I mean, she went to a farm to pick up one show cat. um, And then she came back with 12 because the lady who was going to sell it to her, and this is kind of graphic, got stuck in a tractor, uh, like in the spokes of a tractor and was no longer living. And so the husband of the lady was like, do you want all these cats to take home with you? And so we used to have this like cool outside space, um, like hangout area of our house, our old house. And my mom turned that into a cattery and became a cat breeder. And so I got very close to cats. Like I knew how to deliver kittens. And I don't know, I just always have felt very close to animals. And so in biology class, which was taught by my aunt, uh, cause small town, Mississippi, there's only 15,000 right. people in the town. Um, they will in all these cats and one, I never will forget the smell and two, mine had kittens. And I was just like, I don't, mm. how do I, how do I do this? And my friend, she was like kind of the same way. And I just remember begging my aunt for a C being like, look, if I just point on the picture and tell you where these organs are, can you just dock me points for not like getting in there and really poking around and she was like fine whatever just <laughs> tell me where the organs are um 
I have a question, actually. The man at the tomb that you're talking about, the mummified man, would you almost think that like the experience that you're having of feeling that energy there would be different from being at like a quote regular grave because that person's whole idea was literally to be visited there in like an over the top sense. It's not just like to have family members be able to come visit you. It's literally, he wanted to be put on display. I think that would right. be a completely different dynamic than yeah. haunting like a regular gravesite. Right. Wild. Like I, I don't want to be put to rest. I want to be put on a show. Like yeah. people could drive through and see him and there's photographs of him published and everything. And again, you know, I always say the spirit is not equivalent to the body. However, there's so many things that are, um, you know, intertwined when you're discussing like haunted graveyards and I think a lot of it like you said comes from the families grieving at the graveside and um, watching basically the worst day of their life unfold a little bit of them is dying there and staying there some people are doing rituals not realizing they're doing rituals because they're sitting there they're having lunch with the decedent and and sitting there and um, I discuss at length a lot about um knowing like the decline of Western funeral service in our country has left us to this phase where we're not knowing what happens to us when we're dying. And so there's this unrest as people are being buried. They're like, well, what do I do? Like, where do I go? Whereas like we have other cultures, like the Laotian Buddhist practice, what they do, the family will actually take a white sheet, pull them to the retort, push the button themselves and say, we're ready. We're ready for you to go on your journey. And there are many other practices that do the same. So I think there's variations of that. I think there are people that go go into it and they're like I know this is what I'm supposed to do but I think grief um and the living play a big role in whether or not someone sticks here on this earth and the way people are grieved and at this point we take people out by the dumpsters contract a stranger to pick them up um we never come and identify the body or we'll do it with a, an, an image instead of physically in person and a lot of times these are people are dying at bedside, especially through COVID, and they're um, either visiting with loved ones on FaceTime or alone. And so you have this unrest of, I'm not ready. Whereas, you know, there's people who say, it's okay, it's good, it's time for you to go. And I think those people are less likely to linger than the people that are like, we're, we're kind of confused. Um, so yeah, when it comes to the paranormal, um, I think mediumship's a little bit different. There's like a different kind of understanding with the paranormal, you know, we need to maintain this respectful balance of, are we supposed to talk to this person? How much time from a death is enough time? And then there are occasions where you go and you see a grave because you want to see it. There's an interesting story he wanted to be seen and you go and you feel an energy that you can't help but feel. I didn't try to feel that, you know. And you probably didn't plan on talking about the mummified man for 20 minutes, but hey, here I know we are. that's why I was literally just thinking that. I'm like, ooh, that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's, uh, yeah, let's continue on your journey. Where did you go from there? I drove straight through Missouri. I don't think I stopped anywhere through there. And uh, the first place I arrived in Arkansas when I got to Eureka Springs was a hotel called The Palace. So um, unsuspecting the palace was just this beautiful Victorian hotel, right? Like I didn't think anything was strange about it. Um, it I'm like, this place could be haunted. It looks kind of, you know, spooky. It has a strange elevator. Um, it had like, you know, like nice tubs and stuff, the Eureka Springs vibe of like spas and baths and, and the, you know, the salts and lavenders and stuff like that. And I got settled in. I had a perfect night's sleep. And the next day I stopped for lunch and this lady's like, you know, aside from the places you're going, you should go to the palace. They took overflow and used the basement as a morgue. And I was like, 
Mm. Cool. <laughs> right. So, all right. Hunch was right about that place. So um, it doesn't, it doesn't advertise itself as being haunted. It was a beautiful, wonderful stay. So um, I'll spare them that. And I didn't try investigating there, but that was the first place on my journey. It was, it was really great. The next night we went to the Crescent. So the Crescent is a monster hotel like it's it's massive it's beautiful and it operated as a hotel for many years until a man named norman baker purchased it and he had this great idea that he could cure cancer without any sort of radiation or chemicals or anything he's like gonna cure these people so he actually has pamphlets and he was sending them out in the mail and he was soliciting soliciting for this he was trying to get as many people in this hotel as possible to try his cure. And he was taking money from people. However, it didn't work because he wasn't a doctor. He had no formal medical training and these people were dying. He would wheel them off to the pain ward out of sight to die. And then there's actually a morgue. So not a lot of people probably can say they stayed at a hotel with a morgue that is still in the basement. In this morgue, there is a rainbow array of unusual bottles filled with specimens. These were either things that he cut off of people or things that he made it seem like he cut off of people so that he could prove that he was working. However, when things started to get a little hairy for him, he buried them there. And when they were doing some landscaping at the Crescent several years ago, they uncovered all these creepy bottles. Um, the site of the bottles is there. Uh, you can see where they dug them up. They still have them all on display, which kind of, you know, strange. They have a beautiful, wonderful spa and everything. Like <laughs> that's the thing. Like the, the contrast of what's going on here is you have this luxury place, but they're like, yeah, we're not going to hide this wild history that we had. So there's a great deal of sadness. There's a great deal of uh, dominant energy from Norman. And he, you know, I kind of was urging people to stop assuming that he was a charlatan because I, I thought back to shows and people on shows like Porters where they don't want to ask for help. And maybe he genuinely thought he had something there and he was advertising it, thinking he was going to help people. And it got out of hand. People started getting unmanageable. Some of those people were really terminal to begin with. And that might've been a last resort. And then he was like, what do I do? And then it just, you know, so I try to empathize um, even with people that seem to have these really dark, because it's paranormal investigators, you can't really be assuming, but it, it's just an interesting dynamic. So that was the first step. And but Becky, if you, if, if you don't mind me asking, what time period was that when all that took place? 1947, like not that long ago. Jeez, that is wild. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was not a, you know, you would think it would be 1800s, but no. Did you get to sneak like a foot in a jar out or anything as like a souvenir or? No, and they have specimens in a closet there that are off limits. Whoa. There's like, um, so you go down to the basement and they have the morgue. You can access it for Halloween and ghost tours. And so some people do get the opportunity to see it. And there's this one metal cabinet and they're like, yeah, that's, that's the others, like the others, but I'm like, what excuse me. And they have the log. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, really, really wild history. And the thing is, you know, you see a lot of videos from this place. You see a lot of creators go here. Um, I'm, I don't believe anyone's had the opportunity to have the entire hotel completely shut down, lights out, and, you know, investigating the way that we did. So 
pulling up there, it's a place that I've wanted to go for years. It's like a, it's, it's a bucket list location. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe there's going to be no people here. And just like processing all of that. Yeah. Did Kalani do any of his like, I'm going to get in a straight jacket and lay in the bottles or anything like that and film himself? Or was it a pretty straightforward investigation? If we had so much space that he could just wander around the whole, <laughs> so he has his surveillance going on and he's yeah. wandering around and, and seeing what he can find. And um, we had that night a really interesting experience in, so there's a place called the penthouse. So it's the suite at the top of the hotel, which mm -hmm. Norman would stay in. And so we were attempting to communicate with Norman. We're trying the Estes method and it's saying Savannah, Savannah, which is his wife's name. And she's downstairs monitoring the stream with the uh, television screen, seeing all the cameras. And he gets a call from her after we've said her name a couple of times. So it's like, he's watching her. It's, he's watching Savannah and he gets a phone call and she's like, are you guys messing with me? Like I'm I'm hearing knocking in my room as these names are coming through. And he's like, we got to go down there. And as soon as we get down, she's like, are you guys playing a trick? Cause she was like, you knowing her name was being said what, because we're live upstairs. So she can see this going on. And then at the same time, something's like knocking on her room while saying her name and saying he's watching her. He likes her. Um, so that was like the major creepy event of the Crescent. You know, we came back for breakfast the next day. They have a fantastic breakfast, but it's like, it's unbelievably creepy. It sounds made up, honestly. The story sounds made up and it's not. It's documented. There are historical documents for all of it. This episode of the Real Hauntings Real Ghost Stories podcast is brought to you by Wild Grain. Hey everyone, it's Noah Daniels and I'm here to talk to you again about Wild Grain. Our last shipment of Wild Grain was so good that my four-year-old cannot stop asking for more of that awesome bread with dinner. And I'm not going to lie, I'm right there with him. And honestly, there's nothing quite like the smell of fresh bread baked coming from the oven. What if I told you that you too could get that delicious experience of homemade bread with none of the time and work involved? Well, you can by ordering from Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first ever bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Every item bakes frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. And you can now fully customize your wild grain box, so you can choose any combination of breads, pastas, and pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box. When you go to wildgrain.com hauntings to start your subscription. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com hauntings. That's wildgrain.com hauntings, or you can use promo code hauntings at checkout. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Becky, I hope at some point, and for all I know, this is already in the works, but I hope at some point you get to write a book about all these adventures, because even if Claudia invited you on that, you've gotten to do similar things at other places, you know, where you've had these full access events that most people will never have in their entire life, not to mention just your own background and history is so unique. But um, yeah, that's just a personal manifestation that I would like to read. No, I book, am writing so. a book, actually. I, I just got okay. the first chapter done last week. Um, so I'm writing a book that's kind of an expansion of the grief and ghost hunting lecture, but it talks about like these stories and these places that I've been and kind of how this pushed me from being a full-time mortician to now being a full-time paranormal yeah. investigator. I'm writing this book, I'm compiling the stories of experiences I've had and kind of kind of categorizing them. So one experience that was really great for me was the lost children of the Alleghenies. I think one of the reasons that they may haunt the location where they were discovered is because so many people were searching for them. 4,000 people searched this forest for these little boys who got lost in the woods. And we had a really profound experience. So I kind of get into this discourse about, you know, missing people and why I believe that maybe sometimes when people go missing and it gets international attention, that potentially when these sightings happen, when the person's already deceased, you know that, you know, someone goes missing and it's national news and someone calls in and says, I saw them here. There was a sighting reported. And the family's like, oh, she was sighted that, you know, how, how could this be? Because And then they're found dead and they've been dead for a while. I believe that this is creating potentially thought forms of these people because so many people want to see them so bad that they end up seeing them. And it's kind of discussing things from a paranormal perspective, but also the compassionate mortician lens. It follows my journey from working as a mortician to ultimately being a full-time yeah. paranormal investigator. And I'm hoping, I, I don't really want it to be about me. It's never been about me. I rarely show my face. I try not to make it feel vain in any way or that I'm elevating myself. I really want it to be something that validates people who have lost someone coming from someone who works in an industry that has very conservative views about the paranormal and thinks that it almost will exacerbate or interfere with grief for us to acknowledge the existence of the afterlife or the potential to have the existence. For example, is it would be very taboo to incorporate a medium or any sort of paranormal discussion at a funeral home. It has to be separate. There are laws in place. We've sanitized death to this point where, you know, we have these men in suits running these societies, funeral director associations saying, this is moral, this is ethical. You have to be this certain type of person or you can't what work with the bereaved like we're human wouldn't it be more human to have people who don't have a set of rules and we can just connect one-on-one -on -one as the differences aside you know and instead we want this mold of this perfect societal role member to guide people through these things so that's what it's going to basically expand on it's going to be a process a lot of the investigations that i'm writing about the places i'm talking about experiences i'm talking about are all ones that have moved me in some type of way so you know with the lost children that was one that made me cry so mm -hmm. um reopening that watching videos of myself interacting in a way where i was tearful on an investigation is it's still it brought me back to that moment and bringing people there 
watching a TikTok, watching a TV show, yeah, you can watch the evidence, you can watch a REM pod be triggered. But I feel like I need to bring to my audience what it feels like to get goosebumps, to sit and say to yourself, I need to let go of my impression and allow myself to believe what I'm experiencing so I can move forward in the situation and analyze what's going on here. But if I put a block up and say, this is not real, then I'm not going to be able to move forward. So um, uh, basically internal conflicts of allowing yourself to, to believe and ultimately getting to the point where, yes, I allow myself to believe, humbling myself and getting on my knees and saying, come up to me if you're present. If I feel that you are so present in this investigation. I want you to come forward and reach out to me. So yes, that's happening. I didn't mean to really like go that far into it. It's a very early no, phase fine. of that, but I did get a chapter done. So I'm proud that's of awesome. Well, I can't wait for the uh, Tim Burton adaptation on Netflix. So I'll look <laughs> forward to that. So you had this, you know, pretty cool experience. You got to go there and, you know, uh, supernatural aside, man, that's just a, a really interesting place. And I, I have never seen anything like that. I mean, I know, obviously, you've seen a lot, you've done a lot. But is that one of those that you think, you know, in the quiet times of your mind will kind of sneak back up and be like, Oh, my gosh, that was so crazy seeing all those jars and all that stuff being found? It's gonna stick with me. I have a handful of things um, that I hold very closely that keep me doing what I'm doing. And some places you enter and you think this feels like a script. This feels surreal. How could this be something that actually transpired? So that is one of those locations. You can't find that anywhere else in the universe. And, you know, we have these haunted hospitals. There's a ton of them and people are still buying, especially sanatoriums. People are buying them and putting them up for investigation. So I can have that experience. And each one comes with a creeper and a little kid and like all these same <laughs> tropes, you know, and, and yeah. I'm not attaching. I, when you look at, okay, for example, Waverly and Trans-Allegheny have entities that are, are almost identical. You have a creeper at both. Mm -hmm. um, they tried at Waverly to kind of change that. Um, you have the little boy at Waverly and Trans-Allegheny has a little girl. And so you see these things that mirror each other. You have um, some documented things, but then you have the nurse that allegedly took her own life at Waverly, you know, and, and a lot of these are tropes. My friends and I, after our investigation, four o'clock in the morning, we're goofy. We're, we are Luffy at this point. And we were just laughing how you go to these places. And there's always this local person that's like, oh, this is where Bert hangs out. And he used to work here. And like, it's always like, it's like you don't know this. Like, you're just saying something because, you, you know, you feel it. And unfortunately, you know, I, I do find mediums that I work with to be credible. And I do believe them, but there's also this like very specific type of person or tour guide that gets, they live in a fantasy realm and they are giving these stories that came through the spirit box. I love the spirit box just as much as anyone else, but you can't use that as historical fact when you're giving tours. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's the thing is like the crescent is irreplaceable. It is seen as like the queen of the town. People refer to it as the queen, the crown jewel. Wow. They love it. The locals love it. Um, the other thing about Eureka Springs is they're all like, yeah, it's haunted. And that's beautiful. Uh, a place like New Orleans, you're going to have people that embrace it. And you know, everyone knows it's haunted. Savannah, Georgia, everyone knows it's haunted. Yeah. Eureka Springs, you 
you wouldn't really think that, but go talk to any local, stop in the little shops. It's a very unique town that's built into the rocks. So there's a lot of energy just from the architecture and the way that the town is laid out with these, um, with the stones. There's literally a place called the Grotto um, that they have a bar and they built it around the natural spring. So you can sit by the spring and the rock in there. So that's really cool. Um, wow. So the whole town is really, really unique. That's awesome. And Catherine, I know I've been hogging the mic. Um, are there any questions you'd like to ask about the, the Crescent before we move on? It's so fun because everything I'm about to ask, she answers. <laughs> so I know. Becky's I great in that way. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have um, to make up questions on top of my questions because I'm like, oh, she got that one. Oh, right. she got that one. <laughs> it's interesting though, what, what you're saying about the way that um, some mediums will come in and just give it as like, this is fact because I feel it or the spirit told me. And I was listening to, I believe it was an episode of you on this podcast earlier, listening to you talk about how you like to invalidate things with science before you say that it's a paranormal experience. And that's 100%. I agree with you. Absolutely there. And I do that fantasy world that you talk about other like spiritual quote, spiritual people being in, it kind of discredits some of the, the real life experiences I think that you can have and, and what you're doing with this paranormal investigation with like looking at it from a perspective of grief like that it's so powerful and that's that's a really beautiful thing that you're doing so yeah let's move on to your next location where'd you guys go from there so the next location was basin park it is a 1905 hotel which sits next to the eureka springs basin park which hosts a water spring, which people were, you know, the whole water spring movement thing that happened, the craze where people thought that these waters had healing properties. So it sits next to a site where sick and dying crowded to try and heal themselves. This is desperation, sadness, hope, um, you know, just this really unusual energy. And it's right next to where the original hotel was called the Perry House and it actually burned down. And then the Basin Park Hotel was reconstructed on that site. And the hotel is really interesting, shaped interestingly. It kind of sits on the corner and it has its own share of like murders in the back. And it has at the top a barefoot ballroom where people would come and dance. So you have a happy energy. They have documentation of cowboys and, you know, mob members coming through and staying here. There's a gambling activity. So again, you're coming with this unusual energy, this, you know, people who are gambling, they're decompressing their, this excitement is going out the walls and they're feeling a lot of emotions when they come back to earth and realize like, oh, I lost it all. Um, you have the livelihood, uh, the bar, the lively nature of the bar and, um, at one point it was a museum where they hoisted Elvis's car to the top floor of the hotel. So a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, as far as that hotel went, it's haunted. It is the sister of the Crescent. So same people um, doing the same thing, trying to keep the history alive and being respectful and allowing people to immerse themselves in the paranormal without it being, didn't feel hokey or anything. It's just kind of like, we're here, we like our ghosts and we're not ashamed of them, but you can still have that comfortable hotel atmosphere. So um, with that, you know, we had a thunderstorm 
a thunderstorm, fun fact, will trigger all of your equipment. So we would see the lightning strike <laughs> and then the REM pod goes off, the EMF trip wire goes off, K2, and it's like, this equipment's useless. And it really makes you understand the value of going, you know, zero equipment and just being raw and visceral with your investigations. And I will never say one is better than the other. You will never catch me. And there are people who feel that, that if it's not, you know, without equipment, it's not real. I don't believe that at all. Um, I did have a little pushback because I had a low tech investigation over the weekend, but it was just what fit better for the situation. Um, so yeah, that was something, it really puts it in perspective. You know, what do you do when that happens at this old hotel? You really have to throw a lot out. And we were like, Ooh, the tripwire is going off. And then the storm rolled in and we're like, Oh, this is why this, this stuff's mm. getting triggered. We were trying to like get a dance going, but as far as that was, it was, it was mostly a quiet night. The other thing is it has a cave speakeasy, which you have to crawl down a ladder, like in a hole in the floor to get to. And um, they, you know, op operated as a speakeasy, speakeasy during the prohibition. So that's also on the property. You had a lot going on there, but um, I don't have any really great stories to tell. And that's how it is. Sometimes it was just, I was happy to be in the space. Yeah, for sure. And, and I like that about you that you're still willing to share the experiences of the environment because sometimes that's worth it too, right? You'll mm -hmm. have those memories from there. Well, you, you guys got to investigate the, the sister crescent. Did you leave town then or was there more investigations going on there? I think there's not really a whole lot to do in that area. So on my way out, I stopped at some interesting graves. I posted uh, some pictures of these. There was a coffin covered graves they, they, they have these stone coffins that sat on top and they have all these things with lore surrounding them and when I posted them everyone has a story they're like this is for these are grave covers there there's bones in there they're for you know when people are it's too the ground is too frozen in the winter and it's like we don't know they didn't write it down they weren't like it's 1853 and I'm putting this coffin cover on my grandmother's grave because it, there, there's no reason really. We can only speculate. And that that's the case for a lot of graveyard history. Um, when you start looking even in New England, I've taken courses in even the people who sit at the top of this, you know, there's certain things where we can only go from the context of the art information we have to figure this out. So I'm assuming it's a memento mori situation where, you know, hey, it's okay, we're gonna die someday and we're acknowledging that. And now I can't imagine if you went to a funeral and they just, slapped this massive stone slab <laughs> and you know I found I was really intrigued by these but I found that the Midwest contains a large concentration of them and you'll actually find them in Tennessee as well um they're not coffin shaped but they're tent graves and they are shaped like a tent so they have the headstone in the front and then these slabs that go over same thing it covers the grave and once again we can only speculate it might be to ward off animals to collapse so that when the grave sinks in that people don't step on that um we, we just don't really know yeah graves are fascinating in that way because there are so many variations of what was common and uncommon throughout time and there you can really find as interesting as you want to find. I mean, from New Orleans, you know, being above ground. And I mean, it, it, there's really a lot of cool 
um, interesting things out there. So you you wrapped up there, and then did you all continue driving, or did you fly from there? I I kept driving. So um, that Kalani and I parted ways. Um, so he and Savannah went home, I believe, and then I headed back to Pennsylvania. Was my next destination. So I investigated Hell House LLC last week. And um, it's actually called the Waldorf Estate of Fear. It is a haunted attraction that is actually haunted. It's an actual estate property. So it's a historic property. They don't have any documentation because it's a farm in the middle of nowhere in like Pennsylvania Dutch country. And they've been operating it with a haunted attraction with a story. So the interesting nature of this property is that even though some of the characters that are created with the haunt they are mimicked in the paranormal activity. So they create a character and people react to this character so many times, you see activity that mimics that. And during that investigation, I was with the um, Dead Ends crew. So it's a, a group of people we do live investigations once a month. And I was upstairs in the attic and we get this name, Kevin. And I was like, that's a modern name. Like, who could that be? And at the end of the investigation, they said, oh, Kevin, uh, we see him all the time in the kitchen. He used to work here, like genuinely. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting that we could validate that name that came through. But um, that place, that was too much for me. I, I wasn't scared, but it was just like, you go through this fun house, you're like going through a human car wash with these like flaps in your face, you know, trying to investigate with all of that. It's more of like a fun house vibe and getting like, you know, evidence from a place like that is obviously a challenge because you, um, you're going to get impressions from things like, you know, ghoulish decorations around there. So that was really cool. And I ended up staying at the Inn at Jim Thorpe, which is 12 minutes from Hell House. And so you have this historic area in Jim Thorpe, which is similar to Eureka Springs. It's a mountain, ta- uh, mountain town, which also earned the nickname Switzerland of the United States. Little tourist town. So there's a lot of little historic haunted properties there as well. So I'm kind of at this overload point, um, you know, uh, back to back. No activity at the end, but I think it's because I was just so like, I'm shut down. Like I have experienced so much back to back that I just need to rest when I got back because Hell House it was a lot. The film was made there. And this is also the theme of the next investigation we move on to, but creating a film can actually bring these actors into a situation. They are thinking so intently about this fear that is providing energy for the environment. We don't know for sure, but let's theorize this. So there's just like an unusual atmosphere in films, filming locations even though they're not the site of what actually happened, the story and acting out the story may create something. So, you know, you have these horrible clowns that are in the movie and all of these things and, and, and everyone gets a little uneasy there. So, so that wrapped up Pennsylvania, did a little walking around the town and it was time to head to Savannah, which is the big one, I, I would say, was the big investigation because I'm moving to a location that not very many people have had the chance to investigate yet. What's up, everyone? Noah Daniels here, and I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Real Hauntings podcast. Make sure you stick around for part two, where Becky tells us about what it's like to get full access to a haunted house in one of the most haunted cities in America. Till then, keep it spooky. Greetings, adventurers. Today, we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice. 
a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. 